Hey there, everybody. This is episode 18 of the Sugar Mamas podcast. And today I am speaking with Ariel Warren. Ariel is all the things. She is a registered dietitian. She is a certified diabetes care and education specialist. She's a certified pump trainer. She has had type 1 diabetes herself for the past 26 years and was diagnosed at the age of 4. She is a speaker. She is the owner of her own private practice where she helps people manage their type 1 diabetes virtually. And she is also the author of the book, Type 1 Diabetes for the Newly Diagnosed. Did I get it all? Dang, Ariel, you have been busy. Oh, and I forgot to mention she is a wife and has two kids of her own. So yeah, Ariel's pretty darn busy. But today she took the time to come on the show and talk with me about identifying trends in your CGM data and in other aspects of your life to help you manage your type 1 diabetes better. But before we start talking about identifying trends, I do want to mention a few things. So bear with me. Number one, at certain times in the recording, it sounds as if Ariel has been launched into outer space on some sort of a rocket. (laughs) I think there's just airplanes flying overhead near her office. My guess is that she works close to an airport or perhaps an Air Force base. There was definitely a lot of jet action going on, but don't worry. You can still hear her just fine, but you can also hear the airplanes in the background. Sometimes when recording a podcast, you just really don't know what to expect with the audio, which is very similar to managing diabetes, right? Sometimes you just don't know what to expect. It doesn't always play by the rules, but it was cracking me up. So while you're listening at times, just imagine that you're buckled into a nice cozy airplane seat and you're taking off on an imaginary vacation to Hawaii. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Another thing that Ariel and I discuss quite a bit in this episode is basal insulin, which if you're newly diagnosed, I just want to remind you that basal insulin is also sometimes called long-acting insulin. And then there's also what people call a basal rate, which is typically a term that's used when you're talking about someone who is on an insulin pump. So your basal rate is just whatever tiny amount of rapid acting insulin that you have set to get dispersed into your body every hour. I hope that cleared it up. But if not, you can go back and listen to episode number 13 because I talk a lot more about basal insulin, long acting insulin and basal rates in that episode. That was episode 13. Another thing that we discuss in this episode is basal testing. This is like a this is like a little mini vocabulary lesson before we start the episode, but I just don't want people to be confused while they're listening. We talk about basal testing, but we don't really get into the specifics of how to do it. Basal testing is basically when you have type 1 diabetes, you kind of do like a mini fast for a few hours starting four hours after you gave the last bolus or ate a meal. So it's kind of looking at your blood sugar in the absence of that bolus insulin or food or exercise. And it's a way to determine if your basal insulin or your basal rate is too much causing you or your loved one with type 1 to go too low, or if your basal insulin or your basal rate is too low causing you or your loved one with type 1 to go high. I am not an expert on basal testing. I will say that I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on it at nighttime because that's easy. My daughter's asleep and she's not moving or eating. So that makes basal testing real easy. But during the day, basal testing, let's just 
say I don't like it and I'm pretty lazy about it, but you're going to hear more about that in the episode. I am going to link to the Integrated Diabetes website. I'm going to link to their page where they talk about basal testing. If that's something that you are interested in doing, talking to your endocrinologist about doing, it's Integrated Diabetes Services. And that is at the website for that is integrateddiabetes.com. That is the company that was started by the man, the author of the book, Think Like a Pancreas. Gary Shiner. Fabulous book. I will also link to the book in the show notes with an Amazon affiliate link. Gary does a great job explaining basal testing and why it's important on his website. That is also who Jenny Smith works for. So if you are a listener of the Juice Box podcast, Jenny Smith is the guest that the host of the Juice Box podcast has on frequently for like the pro tip series and defining diabetes and things like that. So she also works there. So it's a pretty awesome website. Okay, last, Ariel mentions the Dawn phenomenon, which if you're newly diagnosed, you probably don't know what that is. I'm still not 100% sure I understand it, but I'm going to read you a definition that I found off of the internet. We'll go with the definition off of the mayoclinic.org. That's a pretty trustworthy organization, I'd say. Here we go. The Dawn phenomenon, also called the Dawn effect, is the term used to describe an abnormal early morning increase in blood sugar usually between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. in people with diabetes. Some researchers believe the natural overnight release of the so-called counter-regulatory hormones, including growth hormone, cortisol, glucagon, and epinephrine, increases insulin resistance, causing blood sugar to rise. High morning blood sugar may also be caused by insufficient insulin the night before, insufficient anti-diabetic medication dosages, or carbohydrate snack consumption at bedtime. I'm pretty sure Dawn phenomenon is also referred to as feet on the floor syndrome, which basically means that somebody with type 1 diabetes can get up out of bed in the morning, put their feet on the floor, they don't even have any food or carbohydrates whatsoever, and their blood sugar starts to go up. So that is the Dawn phenomenon. Okay, that was the longest introduction I've ever done. Thank you for bearing with me. But now it's time to listen to my conversation with Ariel. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. You're listening to the Sugar Mamas podcast, a show designed for moms of type 1 diabetics. Here you'll find a community of like-minded women who are striving daily to keep their kids safe, happy, and healthy while navigating the ever-changing world of type 1. I'm your host and fellow T1D mom, Katie Roseborough. Welcome and enjoy the show. Before we get started, I need you to know that nothing you hear on the Sugar Mamas podcast should be considered medical advice. Please be safe, be smart, and always consult your physician before making changes to the way you manage type 1 diabetes. Thanks. Everybody, I am here with Ariel Warren today, and we are just going to jump right on in because I'm a busy lady and she's a busy lady and we got stuff to do. So Ariel, first things first, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us your connection to type one. Yes. Hi, Katie. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be on this podcast. My name is Ariel Warren. I'm a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, and a certified pump trainer. And I've had diabetes for about 26 years now. So I was diagnosed with type 1 when I was four years old. And 
my my mom knew what to look for because her dad had type one growing up. And so I started showing the signs when I was four. So I started eating a lot. I was super thirsty and just having to go into the bathroom a lot, things like that. And she started seeing the weight loss. And so after being diagnosed, I saw at an early age. I was born in 1991. I was diagnosed in 1995. And growing up, we ate a lot of things like mac and cheese and white bread and jam and honey bunches of oats and Lucky Charms. And I would notice how this would totally wreck my blood sugar. And so it was those early moments that led me to want to become a dietitian because I wanted to become a health professional who was highly specialized in food and its effects on the body in relation to diabetes. So I know a lot about food and diabetes. I know a lot about food because I like to eat food. (laughs) So maybe we can combine our talents and and figure out some of this blood sugar stuff. (laughs) Oh, yes. I love good food, too. Sushi is my favorite, and it is not... (laughs) a little bit hard on us, but we find ways to make it work. Oh, gosh, I love sushi too. Last Mother's Day, that's what I wanted for dinner. And you should have seen my my kids had never had sushi. And it was like I was holding a hot flame to their mouth and forcing them to eat something like that was just gonna kill them immediately. They were they all absolutely hated it. But so I don't have to deal with sushi yet with my type one daughter, but maybe one day I'm, I'm my prayer is that one day somebody will grow up to like sushi and guacamole. Those are my my two things. My kids have grown up eating it. And now they actually crave it, which is now very expensive when we bring the whole family out. So it's not so on the other spectrum. It's yeah, it's okay for them not to love sushi when they're little. That's what I decided. That's a good point. It's financially smart. Okay. So Ariel, what do you do for work? I know you mentioned a little bit about what you do, but where are you working right now? So I am. So I worked at an endocrinology clinic as a diabetes educator for three years out here in Utah. But now I'm, I have my own private practice that's just 100% virtual. And it's how I consult with my clients on their diabetes across the nation. So I teach them about the nutrition and exercise and lifestyle habits and how to look at their own settings with their pump or their, or their pins or syringes and how it impacts their blood sugar. And I also do the, I work, I help people with looping off-label looping because there's not a whole lot of support who people want to that want to go that direction and then I'm a pump trainer as well for Medtronic Omnipod and then a national trainer for Tandem so I do a lot of trainings outside of Utah and across the United States for Tandem. Wow so do you do you loop? Yes I do loop I use I have the Tandem pump and I have Omnipod and I go between the two because I have a lot of patience on both. And I like to stay relevant and understand the day-to-day using both pumps. That's so interesting. Do you have like a time of year where you prefer to prefer to wear the Tandem versus the Omnipod? Or do you just kind of switch off every couple of weeks? It's more so if I have a lot of questions asking about something that's more Tandem specific. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to try that. So then I'll hop on and use that. So I have another question about your patient population. What ages do you typically see? Is it all ages all across the board or do you kind of specialize in a certain age group? Just insulin dependent diabetes. So if somebody's using insulin, it doesn't really matter the age. I have worked a lot with adult endocrinology, but I have definitely worked quite a bit with peds as well. And then the parents with the son or daughter who also has diabetes. Okay. And I had you on today because I want to talk about identifying trends with diabetes management. We, You and I had kind of talked before and you mentioned that was something that you really enjoyed doing, felt passionate about it, and you felt like you were good at it. So I said, well, let's let's talk about that. I'd love to talk more about that. And I'm sure my listeners would love to learn more as well. So what is a trend in terms of diabetes management? How would you define that? So keeping it 
Super straightforward, a trend is just a reoccurring change in one's blood glucose levels, typically caused by lifestyle habits and insulin settings, but also from these temporary stressors like sickness, medications, changes in sleep, stress, a menstrual cycle. All those stresses are just another layer on top. So how long does a change in the blood sugar have to be going on for you to consider it a trend? I know that when we left the hospital, they kind of said like three days, I want to say. I'm I'm honestly, I'm not a patient person, so I don't tend to wait that long to kind of make little changes here and there. But what do you consider a trend? It's That's a really good question because there's two different types of trends that I usually look at. One is just looking at the hourly. What's your blood sugar? What does it usually drop at this time? And those are the ones that are more basal related. If it's a basal related, I want to see it the majority of the time because whenever you make a change in basal, I think of it as being very permanent. Let's say at from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., somebody tends to raise a little bit, but not every day. You don't want to increase the basal at that time because it's going to lower all glucose levels. And so if it's basal related, I like to see at a minimum four to five days out of the last seven days. Because if it's not basal related, then it can be, okay, let's look at your correction. Let's look at your carb ratio. Let's look at the situation. If it's basal related, it needs more data to back it behind it up, more days, because that's a permanent change. And you see that everything has been changed during that time. So do you, does that differ with the patient, whether they're on MDI or pumping, because I feel like you can fine tune the basal rate on a pump a lot easier and better than you can with MDI. I mean, once you dose for your long acting insulin with MDI, unless you're like splitting the dose at different times of day, you're kind of stuck with it for at least 24 to 48 hours. So exactly. And just understanding the different nature of the different long acting insulins. For instance, Mm -hmm. Lantus tends to peak in efficacy six to eight hours in. And so I'm not a big fan of having the heavy dose before bed because then that can cause overnight lows. Hmm. But then generally, if you can do it earlier in the morning, the heavier dose, and if someone does split the dose, unless they eat a really big meal at night too, then you know you kind of have to balance the two. But yes, it's definitely understanding the type of the long-acting insulin that somebody's using. For another example, like Traceba works in the body up to 42 hours. And so to me, that's a slow and heavy hitter. When you change Traceba, you don't want to change it day to day. You definitely want to wait at least three days because it takes a long time to see the full effects of that change. So it's first understanding the long-acting insulin and the, how the different long-acting insulins work. But with a pump, I am a fan of a pump. I love pumps. I want I go on a couple pump breaks here and there, but it's really nice to be able to see, hey, at this time from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., there is always a drop. Well, even if we don't know exactly why that drop is happening, it'd be pretty safe to just make a basal tweak there. And so I usually look at an hour beforehand and then reduce the basal there. But yes, there's a lot more, especially there's some people that just do just fine with long-acting insulin, so they don't really need a pump. Taking that one or two steady doses works really well, but then you have other people where it's like low this time of day, high this time of day, low during the middle of the day, drops before dinner. And there's, of course, the other factors, but also having the ability to adjust those basils to help just straighten the day out a little bit is really helpful for that type of person. Can I ask you a question about splitting doses with basal insulin for somebody that's on MDI? We were on, oh gosh, what were we on? We were on Basaglar to start and we switched to Traceba pretty soon after she was diagnosed because the Basaglar was burning her and the Traceba we were 
we had heard that it didn't like sting or burn. But then I was kind of thinking about maybe anyway, I was told that we could not split the Traceba dose. And maybe that's because of the, the fact that it can last up to 48 hours. So which long acting insulins can you split the dose with, obviously, with the help of your medical team? Yes. Good question. So the ones that do not last the full 24 hours. So that's going to be, well, they say up to 24 hours. And then that's going to be Lantus, Levomir, Dudumir, and Basiclar. So the Trujeo and the Traceba are the, they're actually classified as ultra long lasting insulins. And Trujeo is supposed to last in your system up to 36 hours and Traceba is supposed to last up to 42. So some people may be able to split Trujeo, but it's not very common because again, it's still pretty ultra long lasting. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. We really love Traceba as a side note. I don't know. It just seemed so, it just seemed to hold her so much more steady than at least the Basiclar that we were on before. It seemed really smooth and it was so forgiving. Like I, I felt like we did not do this very often, but there were probably two or three nights where we just were busy and we were out and about and I totally forgot to give her her long acting insulin. And so of course I'm like, you know, staring at the Dexcom the whole next day waiting for her numbers to go way up. And they didn't. So I feel like it's very forgiving. If you do miss a day, it's it will kind of cover you. Yes, they did a study on just that. If they purposely had patients skip every other day, and they still had level readings, definitely in comparison to other long acting insulins. So it, that's another I used a lot of the long acting insulins too, just because I also like that personal experience. And I was on Traceva for about a year after my second baby. And I even tried splitting it just to see, and I didn't see a difference with it. But it was interesting. It's it's just, it's thick and powerful, and it takes a couple of days to see the full effect of it. But it definitely is more forgiving where you don't have to do it every, you don't have to do it the exact same time every day. I like that about it. We're not, um, we're kind of a pick up and go spontaneous family. So I liked having a long acting insulin that was a little bit more forgiving. It made me, gave me peace of mind. Another question, just a out of curiosity, because I've always wondered this, does anybody that's on a pump ever like take a long acting insulin like Lantus or Traceba and then just turn their basal rate down to almost zero and just kind of have the long acting insulin that way, but use the pump to bolus for meals and things like that? Yes. It's not super common, but it definitely does happen. So I would say I work with people with type 1 and type 2. And with type 2 diabetes, people are more insulin resistant, so they require more insulin. And so if I have somebody that who requires more than 200 units for Omnipod every three days or more than about the 300 units with the Medtronic or Tandem, then they will use a long-acting insulin and then just bolus for their meals. And then I've also had I had this one patient recently where she said she just felt better when she used 2JO. And even though it didn't really make clinical sense, I just, I, you got to listen to the people that you work with. And so she would take 2JO and then she would just bolus with her pump for her meals. So interesting. Okay. All right. Let's get back to talking about trends. So what questions do you typically ask patients or parents of patients when you're helping them to kind of identify trends throughout their day? I always like to open it up with, how do you feel like this last week or couple of weeks have been for you? What do you feel like your top stressor has been? Or do you feel like there was any particular day that was really difficult for you? Because I found that those are the days that we learn the most. And so then, and as I work with somebody, I always say, okay, remember to write down a note 
on a day if you feel like it was a really difficult day because we're going to go back and we're going to review that in detail so we can understand why you had that high or that low or what was happening. And that's been starting there. It just opens up the top, opens up the conversation and it helps the patient see, okay, oh, I wasn't really out of that out of control or this is what caused that high. And then I stacked my insulin and I went low. And it's very freeing for somebody to see, oh, I can actually make a change or I can learn from these situations and do better for the next time this comes up. And so that's usually one of the biggest questions right when I'm getting started. And I'll also ask, well, what they'd like to concentrate that meeting and consult today. And so a lot of times when I'm first starting with somebody, we're just going to be focusing more on their settings and their blood sugar trends. But sometimes some people just want to look at nutrition and how certain foods affect their blood sugar or a lot of, I have a lot of people who really want to look at their exercise. This exercise is so dang tricky. The anaerobic, anaerobic, and the different times of the day, and the different intensity, and how your body is affected if you haven't exercised in a long period of time. So I just always make it patient-focused. We start with the questions that are the biggest to the patient I'm working with, and then that just opens the doors and they start asking more and more questions about their daily lifestyle so that we can we can tweak things, tweak the nutrition, their exercise, talk about, hey, when you're going to do that type of exercise at this time, reduce your basal 30 minutes to an hour beforehand so you won't have that low 20 minutes into your exercise. So it's definitely, it's patient focused. It's Where's your biggest trouble troubles? And also, if they feel like they've been seeing a pattern, they'll always ask too, do you feel like you've found any patterns in these last week or so? And then if they say something like, oh, yeah, around 3 p.m., I feel like I'm always going low. Hmm. So then we'll take that and we'll go into the reports and we'll see, okay, maybe there's a low a little bit, but it's not, maybe they'll say something like, oh, I think my basil is just way too high at 3 p.m. But then looking into the reports, we'll see, okay, this, this person is just over, they're stacking their insulin because they had a high at lunch and then they're going low. So it's not basal related. That makes it more carb ratio related. So when you're, you mentioned that you kind of have, have them write down um, trends that they're seeing have patients kind of log the trends. What I feel like that's something that I need to do more of um, because I have I kind of rely on that CGM data almost too much. Like I'm like, well, I don't need to write it down because I just I can go back and look at the the Dexcom or the Clarity app. But I feel like keeping a, a little bit more of a detailed log would be would help me identify trends with my daughter. So when you have people write things down or keep a log, what are the things you're having them them log? So I try to make it as easy as possible first. And so a, a, there's a lot of different devices like with um, with Dexcom, you can add an event and with T-Connect, you can go back and add an event. And so I try to make it pretty easy so that when we're just looking at the data, we're like, okay, you added an event right here and we can go over it. So the big ones are if we are going through the reports and we see, hey, they have a blood sugar spike sometime at this time and another time they drop, then I want to look at the, I want to look at the nutrition at this time. I want to see what they're eating and I want to see if they have any type of exercise that we're not talking about that we're missing because we have so many little lifestyle things that we just do we don't think about Mm -hmm. so when we identify hey there's something funky going on at this time then that's something that i'll have them write down a little note on and so then we can go back to reports and see how we can adjust 
settings or behavior so that they don't keep having those highs and lows. So if we see something or going through the reports that looks that's causing weird highs or lows, or if they are having a hard time with their nutrition and they can't really remember what they did, then it's good to just write it down. Or a big one would definitely be exercise because there's different types of exercise. So anything that really super stands out, nutrition and exercise are the top three. Okay. So do you kind of base your trends solely on the the CGM data that you get? Or maybe if they don't have a CGM, like the glucose readings that they're logging in their meter or writing down on their own? Or are there other things that you kind of evaluate and look at to identify a trend? I use, I'd say, I'd say the CGM data is the foundation that ignites all my questions to help people identify their trends, but it's definitely not the full picture. So I do love Dexcom. I'm not going to hide it. I love their reports. <laughs> it's so easy. It's And so I'll just bring up the clarity and then you can go into the health professional part and just add the code. And then I'll have my patient log on themselves. And so then they feel more power because they feel like, okay, yeah, I'm in control. I can see my stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have them say, okay, hey, look at this do you see anything that's going on? And so that's, it's really fun for them to just take the reins and show me what they're finding, what they see. So I definitely use the CG reports as the foundation, mm-hmm. but then also having, it's nice having things like T-Connect and Gluco and Tidepool and Carolink where it shows the pump information and in mm-hmm. pen if somebody's using pens, because then that shows me their behavior of, when they're bolusing for a meal and when they actually eat. And also shows me if they're in a closed loop system, how the pump is adjusting basal to see, because then that will show me, okay, where are the settings at? If it's adjusting too aggressively at this time, we need to notch it back a little bit. So CGM, yes, that's the foundation, but I love these other reports on top of it. And I'll use both of them in my browser at the same time and screen share with my patient as well. And we'll flip between the two so they can also see the other reports as well. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we've talked so much about basal, long acting insulin, basal rates. I feel like that's just, you got to get that right first before you do anything else. So how, do you recommend that people basal test often? I hate basal testing in my daughter. <laughs> I mean, really, the only basal test we do is at night because she's sleeping and she's not eating or moving. So, you know, I feel like we've got a really good handle on her basal rate at night, which is great because everybody's sleeping well. But man, during the day, that's just so much to ask a kid to not eat. And anyway, let's talk about basal testing a little bit, if you don't mind. Like, do you recommend that a lot for your patients? No, I do not. The reason is because food is very powerful and food has, if you eat something that's really high fat, that's going to last in your body between two to eight hours. Mm-hmm. And so if you're eating something like that every breakfast, but then you basal test, that's going to give you a false low of the requirements that you need. It's it's kind of, it, it depends on the person. That's what mm-hmm. I'm going to say. Because mm-hmm. It gives you a good idea, but it definitely is a false low of what the basil should be because we eat food, we're humans. And so if you always eat breakfast, you tend to need a little extra basil afterwards. And yes, you could do an extended bolus, but either way, you need a little bit more coverage after those types of meals. So Mm -hmm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but especially breakfast is the one that hits the hardest. Mm -hmm. And so... 
to me, what's more helpful is just looking at their nutrition and their trends. And so it's especially, it's really hard on the little ones to do that. And so what I have seen, especially these closed loop systems, is just, I think that over time, we're not going to use that as much mm-hmm. because nutrition has such a large impact on how much basil we need throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Well, in the closed loop systems, that's they're constantly changing the basal rate, right? To prevent highs and, and lows. So you have your, so it depends on which system you're on. Okay. So like the Medtronic system, it takes your basal average and then it has artificial version of you and it looks at, hey, at this time of day, your blood sugar usually drops. And so it usually decreases the basal during that time of day and vice versa. On the other hand, with like the tandem pump with control AQ, it uses the settings that you put into it. And then if your blood sugar is starting to rise, it uses your correction factor to know how much to adjust your basal. And then if you're going over 180, it does a correction bolus as well. So it's, it is, it's good to have a decent basal, but it's, yeah, it's always being adjusted with these closed loop systems. Yeah. Because I, I remember reading something about basal testing once and it's like, you know, obviously you, you don't eat for a prolonged period of time. Isn't it like how many hours do they suggest if you're going to do a basal test, like six hours. And I remember reading about like, and okay, so you're, you're not going to, you're not going to eat. Okay. Like, so for me, you know, my nine-year-old daughter isn't going to eat for six hours and you need to be relatively inactive, right? Like you can't go out and jump on the, or she couldn't go out and jump on the trampoline or go get in the swimming pool. So kind of just hanging out around the house. So, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, but that's not real life. Like, Mm mm-hmm. On any other day, we're going to we're going to get up on a Saturday morning and we're going to go watch her brothers play baseball. And then we're going to get up on Sunday and we're going to go to church and then she's going to get up on Monday and go to school. So, I mean, I, I see why they're helpful and definitely at night. I mean, I'm always looking at that data because everybody wants to sleep. So I'm like, if I could just get this basal rate correct at night, like <laughs> that's the most important thing to me. And then we'll do the just kind of do the best we can during the day. But yeah, I just that just didn't seem like that was a real life situation to me of, well, but that wouldn't whatever basal rate she would need when she's at home not eating and not really being moving around very much like that's not going to be the basal rate she needs when she's actually living her life so i don't know exactly that is so it's kind of to me it's a little bit it's helpful for the people that maybe aren't maybe they have more sedentary lifestyle i mean that could be a little bit more helpful but for especially somebody who's pretty active most days and it's you'll see too if you ever accidentally skip a meal with diabetes you have lows because your basal is set based on you usually eating breakfast and you needing some more a little bit more coverage after that meal mm-hmm. and so by skipping that first meal and basal testing now you're going to go low because now your basil's too high. So it's just, it can be helpful sometimes, especially overnight would be the time would be the most helpful, but also other factors, huge factors going into your nighttime. Like if you eat something that's higher fat, higher protein versus something that's leaner, then that's going to take more, just a heavier coverage for hours after the heavier meal Mm -hmm. versus the leaner one. And so by getting that under control, and giving more insulin when you need it, that's going to greatly reduce how much insulin you need overnight. Mm-hmm. And so, but yes, agreed with what you said. It's just not 100% applicable because your daughter is not sitting at home all day doing nothing. That's not her life. Yeah. I mean, some days we have, sometimes we have days like that, but they're few and few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then we'll do like a mini basal 
test during the day, but it's not something that I'm like really planning. You know what I mean? Like she'll like, for example, on a Saturday, you know, Saturday mornings can be pretty lazy and she'll get up and just kind of start watching TV. Well, that might go on for a while and she might not eat breakfast at her normal time. So I kind of use that extra hour or two to see what her blood sugar is doing without bolusing or eating. And then sometimes at school, thank God my daughter actually loves like vegetables, like fresh raw vegetables. So a couple days a week, I'll just pack her with, you know, she'll bolus for lunch and she'll eat lunch and she eats lunch so early at 10 o'clock. But then I will pack her a um, a snack that has no very little carbs in it, like just fresh veggies or um, a cheese stick or something like that. So I'm, I kind of use that too as like just a little mini basil test in the middle of the day where she's not really having to bolus for another meal. I don't know. That's it, kind of a, a little way that I like to sneak in tiny ones. But again, I just, it's just you never, never know. Like some days it might be raining at school and they go out for recess and some days it's, or they don't go out for recess and then some days it's sunny and they do. And depending on what she does at recess, it just, it just varies so much during the day. Yeah. There's definitely, I like what you said there, just having a couple hours here and there where you can see, hey, is this enough? It does change day to day quite a bit just with the different food and if she's feeling sick one day, if she's exercising more. But there is aspects of basal testing that can still be really helpful. But I, overall, I feel like I'm kind of moving away from those just because we have these smarter systems and I don't think that it's really relevant to your day to day as relevant. It's a good baseline, but it's not something you should worry about and really feel like you have to go through. I mean, it's just, it's really hard on young kids and people to go that long sometimes. Yeah, I agree. So what are some of the really common trends you see in your patients? And if you have any examples that you could offer up, I'd love to hear them. Obviously you can't share details because of HIPAA, but what are some of the common ones? Number one is people over-treating their lows, especially with a closed-loop system. So I see this all the time when I see these huge spikes. I mean, sometimes we just missed a meal. We didn't bolus for something. A lot of times you'll see somebody who's starting to dip. And if I'll know, just knowing, talking to the person, if it's not even dipping, but I just see, I'm like, oh, were you feeling like you were going to go low? And they're like, yes. Like, okay, that's why we went up to like 200 or 300 because you just went crazy with the juice. So that one is super common. And especially in a closed loop system where it's cutting out basil many minutes, maybe even an hour before you even hit that low, you just need hardly anything to treat that low to bring you out of it. That would be number one. Okay. That's something we're working on in our household. Okay. I'm listening. <laughs> oh, it is so hard because I say what I call it is caveman brain turns on mm-hmm. and all logic is out the door. You just want to eat everything in sight. Mm-hmm. And so I personally can't treat with juice because I want to drink a gallon. Mm-hmm. And so I just tell patients to have something they like, but they don't love, which kind of mm-hmm. takes the fun out of it. But if you're eating something, I know a lot of people don't like candy corn, but I love candy corn. So if I treat it with candy corn, I eat way too much candy corn. Mm-hmm. So by eating something like glucose tabs, you know, which are very boring, but that's straight sugar and it's also a glucose. So it's a single malt. It's a, it's a monosaccharide. So that means just it's really easy for your body to use it really quickly. Got it. Treating something you like, you don't love and have it portion controlled before you go low. Mm-hmm. Because if you're low, you're just going to eat anything that's in sight. Mm-hmm. So just keeping it small and waiting like 15, 20 minutes before you retreat again. Mm-hmm. And then I always tell people to test their blood sugar instead of looking at your CGM because your CGM 
is slow. There's that 10, 15 minutes of lag time. So it's not going to catch that that you're starting to rise. Mm, no, that's all. That's great advice. Okay, what else? Any other? What are, What are some other common trends? The second one, it's not giving enough time with pre-bolusing, and depending on which system you're on, I mean, most being a little bit more bold especially with the closed loop system with the bolus that you're giving. Because if you take a little bit too much insulin, it's the pump can just take out basal. You might have a little drop in blood sugar, but then it's going to level out pretty nicely. But if you don't give yourself enough time, the blood sugar is going to spike and then it's going to take more insulin to bring it down than what you would have needed if you just gave yourself more time. That one's really tricky because we don't know what we're going to eat all the time. I mean, especially with little kids. Holy cow, it's so hard. Right. So I just pre-dose with what you know your kid usually eats. So if it's dinner time, she always eats at least 50 grams. Mm-hmm. Goal is for 50 and do that about 15 minutes before. Mm-hmm. If she if she metabolizes it really fast and she starts to go low, then maybe just do 10 minutes for her. Mm-hmm. But then if you realize, oh, she wants a little treat or she wants something else, she wants a little bit more carbs. At least now your body has that insulin to work with beforehand. So it's not going to just cause the blood sugar to go up high and then sit high for hours. So mm-hmm. pre-bowl is what you know your kid or you are going to eat. And then the moment you realize you're going to eat a little bit more, do another shot or bolus then. So sometimes I'll do like two, three or four in a single night uh, for bolusing for dinner. Yeah, that's good advice too. I feel like my daughter's pretty good about telling me what she's going to eat and then actually eating it. But yeah, I would think with like a toddler, like you said, you kind of just have to bolus for what you know they're going to eat. I have found with us, I I feel like my daughter is, I'm going to talk to the endocrinologist next time we go. I feel like she's pretty insulin resistant. Like we have to have, and it might be the insulin we're using, um, which is Novolog. But I mean, sometimes we have to do like a 30 or 40 minute pre-bolus. And it also depends on the food that she's eating, like higher glycemic index foods that hit her harder and faster. We have to do a longer pre-bolus for, which can get really tricky, but yeah, it's hard for the little ones. Um, Mm -hmm. What I would suggest too, is just trying to keep the, with the meal that she's eating, she can eat more of the protein and the high fiber, lower carb parts first. So like Mm -hmm. if she's eating, if she's eating chicken, having her eat the chicken and the veggies first and then saving the carbohydrate part to later in the meal, Mm -hmm. that's going to allow the blood sugar spike to not go up so quickly. And it's just going to give the insulin more time to work. So she doesn't have as much of a high from that. Okay. The biggest meal, another trend is breakfast is a really nutty time for people with diabetes because there's a couple of reasons, but the, the biggest reasons are you haven't had a large dose of insulin in many hours. So the last time you really dosed for something was dinner. Mm. And then you also go over the dawn phenomenon and then your body's also releasing these counter-regulatory hormones that cause your blood sugar to spike about an hour before you wake up. And so it's it's like your body is just waiting to react to any carbohydrates that you eat. Mm. And so that meal tends to take them, takes a substantially, just tends to take more insulin and more time. And that happens even more if somebody has a prolonged fast. So maybe they skip breakfast and now they're eating lunch. Just know that if they eat a meal that's more refined in carbohydrates, it's going to take more time and more insulin. So that first big meal of the day that tends to require quite a bit. And then dinner too. You have these hormones that are slowing your body down and you're also eating foods that are higher in fat and protein. So after dinner, people tend to have these highs that kind of sit there and don't really move. 
Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times that's when I will have somebody increase the basil. It Sometimes it's actually after dinner because it hits them later. So this is just another trend. So maybe they eat dinner at six, but then their blood sugar starts trending and going high at like 7.30 and then it just stays high. And then that's a tricky time. So I will have somebody increase the basil either before or after dinner to help decrease that after meal spike. And if you don't get that in line before you go to bed, then that can cause lows overnight because somebody's getting frustrated, which is another trend. They get frustrated. They keep correcting because their blood sugar is high. Then the insulin stacks and then they go low a couple hours into their sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So many things to look for. It's amazing. If we eat a high fat, high protein meal, like pizza, for instance, it's amazing how it's three, like three hours on the dot. I see my daughter start to rise. So now I feel like that's a trend that I've identified with her. Like I'll just even before the rise, like an hour before I know that rise is going to happen. I'll just do a temp basil increase, like rather than a bolus, which with the, mm-hmm. that's such a, such an amazing benefit of the pump. Because if I do a temp basil increase and then I see like, oh, she's not actually rising and it's dropping her, I can cancel it, which is nice. But once you give the bolus, you can't cancel that. But I'll start that temp basil increase, you know, depending on how fatty and how high protein the meal was, like I might do an 80% temp basil increase for hours at a time. Yes. So that's something, it's just amazing. It's like three hours on the on the dot after she ate a meal, she will start to, or after she started eating a meal, she will start to to rise after that kind of meal. Yes. If carbohydrates get all the attention, but protein actually takes about half the amount of insulin mm. that carbohydrates does, one gram of protein versus one gram of carbohydrate. Hmm. I mean, it kind of depends on, it's just saying that protein also requires insulin and fat is, I call fat a gasoline for your diabetes because if you eat only fat, it's just going to stay level. It's not going to do anything. But as soon as you add protein and carbohydrates to the fat, it causes insulin resistance. So it's like you've just lit the gasoline and the, your blood sugar is going to raise and it's going to stay high anywhere between three and eight hours if you don't also give more insulin to compensate for the insulin resistance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somebody I was talking to last week was, described it as... Um, like when you eat it, when you are eating like a keto diet, like high protein and high fat, you're you're building a wall. Like that fat is building a wall that makes you more insulin resistant. I like the visual of the wall. Ooh, I like that. That's exactly. So when you, keto is kind of tricky. I really have to, it's very patient specific. It works really well for some people, but just knowing of that wall and just understanding if you do have a higher chance of going into DKA when you cut out your insulin. And so then if something bad happens, like you just your pump's not working or you had a super high, then you just don't have as much insulin that you would usually need because you've greatly reduced your insulin requirements. But yes, it can work really well just because there isn't as many factors. You don't have the, as many carbohydrates. So I, I do eat a lower carb diet, but I definitely still like some sh- sushi and some pop corn every once in a while, but generally speaking, I, I make it more protein-based, whole foods, and moderate carbohydrates, lower carbs. Yeah. Well, that's really healthy for anybody, not somebody with type 1. So just taking care of your body. I want to talk about, I, I feel like we could talk about trends for a lot longer. And um, so before we go on to the next topic, is there anything else that you wanted to say about that that matter? Another one that I got two more. I have, yeah, I have a tell us. whole list here, but the other one is poor site rotation. Mm. I see this all the time. So someone who is pushing the three-day envelope, it shows in the data. And also it's just that the site starts to break down and the body doesn't absorb the insulin as well. And this 
causes highs that are stubborn to treat and a lot of lows because when highs are stubborn to correct, people overcorrect. If this happens at nighttime, then they go to sleep and that can cause the insulin to stack and then for them to go low. Mm. And looking at the data, when somebody is, they either have a bad location for their infusion set or their infusion set just isn't working well, mm-hmm. or they have insulin that's a little bit old. It's like this insulin is really slow to respond. And when they eat something, they go super high and then it brings, mm-hmm. just takes forever to bring the blood sugar down. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people that are frustrated with that and they just think like, oh, diabetes is whack. But it's, mm-hmm. if you have any issues with your infusions, if you have any issues with this weird high that you can't explain, 95% mm-hmm. of the time it's just a bad infusion set. Mm-hmm. And if you're not rotating your insulin, so fast acting insulin starts going bad after 28 days. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not rotating that soon enough, then it could also be that the insulin's not as effective either. Mm. And so that's going to cause for this slow to correct and these these high spikes after each meal, okay. even if you do bolus. Okay. And the last one I just want to make sure that we talk about quickly is I could go on to this for several podcasts, but... Oh, good. We'll just have you back. <laughs> aerobic and anaerobic activity. What I see people do is if they just eat their dinner and then they want to go on a walk afterwards, when you do cardio activity, something that's like a slow burn, a steady state walk, that is 100% aerobic at that point. If somebody's not in very good shape and it's really hard for them to do that, then it would be more anaerobic. But kind of for the general public, just going on a walk is just aerobic. And so during aerobic activity, your body is burning up the glucose for energy. And then your body is also, your muscles are becoming more insulin sensitive. So because of those those two mechanisms, it's really causing your blood sugar to spike after about 15 minutes. And so if you gave yourself four units to cover your dinner meal, that's going to work like it's six or eight units because your body's now burning up that glucose and you're becoming insulin sensitive. So if you know that you're going to exercise soon after a meal, I say within 45 minutes, Mm -hmm. then I would just reduce that bolus. The sooner you exercise after the meal, the less of a spike you'll see, but reduce the bolus because you're going to become hypersensitive to the insulin that's on board. Okay. And then what about what but what about anaerobic activity? That's more like a sprint, right? Or like a weightlifting maybe? I love using exercise as tools for my diabetes. I, I'm the only one in my family who has diabetes and my family says I'm going to outlive all of them because diabetes makes me super healthy. <laughs> yes, girl. So anaerobic is beautiful because if your blood sugar is low, you can use it to actually raise your blood sugar. And I would not tell anybody that unless they had glucose on hand and they are ready to treat a low anyways. But several times I have, if I wake up early in the morning and my blood sugar is sitting low, I will get on the treadmill and I will run sprints. And that Mm. will make your blood sugar jump 30 to 40 points and then it levels out. And so only one morning I was at, I shouldn't say this, but I was right at 60. Mm-hmm. And I got on the treadmill uh-huh. first thing in the morning. My blood sugar, and I ran like my legs were going to fall off. <laughs> and I do this just for one mile. And I do this. So then my blood sugar went up to 120, and then it just sat at 90. And then I could mm. finish my workout. Hmm. So what's, okay, anaerobic is like, like you already said, your body's eating up. It's more of a longer, you're in it for the long haul, like a walk or maybe riding a bike, something like that. Your body's burning up that glucose. You're becoming more insulin sensitive to your, your insulin sensitivity is higher, right? Aerobic. Aerobic. Yeah, aerobic. I'm sorry. Yes. Aerobic means oxygen and anaerobic is the lack of oxygen. So when you can breathe really well, things are easy. You're able to sing. You know, that means that you're using more of an aerobic activity. 
Mm-hmm. Anaerobic is you're panting, you can't breathe, it's the lack of oxygen. Your body is then pushing these counter-regulatory hormones like epinephrine and adrenaline and even cortisol that are causing your blood sugar to spike. Okay. And your liver is breaking down its glycogen storages and releasing more glucose into your bloodstream, which is also causing your blood sugar to spike. So even using the muscles, the bigger muscles like your back and your legs and mm-hmm. doing really intense workouts, that's going to cause your blood sugar to spike even more than doing your arms because an arm activity is going to be a little bit more cardio than the bigger muscles. Hmm. So interesting. I want to have you back on to, t- to go into a little bit more detail on the exercise. It is very interesting and it's very cool once you can figure out how it works with your diabetes. Yeah, how to use it to treat lows and highs. I didn't know. I've never heard of anybody using it to treat a low. That, I like that. That's an interesting nugget of wisdom. If somebody is, is a super high basal though and then goes into an anaerobic They'll probably still have that spike, but then they're going to go lower faster. So there's, we can spend a lot more time on that another day. Let's do it. All right. Before we leave, because I know we're running out of time, you wrote a book and I want you to tell people about it because I just think that's amazing. So tell us about your book. Yes. Yeah, so I have a diabetes blog that I write on. It's been pretty busy lately, but it's just arielwarren.com. And I had a publisher reach out to me and they wanted, she had type one herself, the, the editor. Oh. And she wanted me to write this book for type 1 diabetes for the newly diagnosed. And so when she gave me the project, I thought, oh, yes, of course, mm-hmm. I can do something to help my people. So I say the type 1 community, you're my people. And so this book is it's a it's a shorter read. It's about 150 pages. You can get it through Amazon, at Target and Barnes and Noble online. I actually don't receive any profits from telling people about it. It's because I was, it was born of a paid to write. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's a good resource for people. So I tell people about it. So it it talks about what to expect with a new diagnosis because it's such a big change on not just the person with diabetes, but their loved ones and what to do. Like I talk about nutrition and exercise and I talk about the the mental health of being of having a new diagnosis. And then I also talk about how to live a long and healthy life with this new diagnosis, how to make these habits sustainable and how to keep, you know, living your life. So it's it's mm-hmm. a quicker read. And I have a lot to say about how to live a full life with diabetes. Just being diagnosed at so young, I uh, decided at a young age that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping people with diabetes. So I love that. I I own it. I I bought it and I've read probably about a third of it so far. And it's great. It's a very easy read. It's very positive and encouraging, which I think is exactly what a a newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic needs or the parent of a a newly diagnosed T1D. And it just kind of goes over the basics in a way that's easy to understand and and gives you kind of a good foundation when you're first starting out. So thank you. I've really enjoyed it so far. Oh, good. I tell people it's a, it's a nice warm hug when you've first been diagnosed. It's, just, it's light, but it's, this is what you need to know, the basics mm-hmm. and how to say in a digestible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is like a light, a light warm hug. I like that. And we, we us moms especially need lots of warm, warm hugs when, <laughs> when our kids are diagnosed. It's tough. All right, Ariel, I know we've, we've got to jump off, but I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about exercise or really anything you feel passionate about. So I'll email you. We can chat. Okay. Let's do exercise. That one's really fun. Okay. Hey guys, that is the end of our show today. But before I cue the music and start the outro, I just wanted to let you know how you can connect with Ariel if you're looking for help with your or a loved one's diabetes management. You can visit her through her online practice at arielwarren.com. 
com. I will leave a link to that in the show notes. You should also check out her awesome YouTube channel. Just search Ariel Warren on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. All right, that's it. Cue the music in five, four, three, two. All right, everybody, that is the end of episode 18. I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was really chocked full of a lot of information. I'm excited to have Ariel come back onto the show to talk about exercise sometime. And who knows, maybe I'll have her on again for other topics as well. In the show notes, I'm going to link to all the things, including Ariel's website, her Instagram handle. I'm going to give you an affiliate link to find her book, Type 1 Diabetes for the Newly Diagnosed on Amazon. I will also give you an Amazon affiliate link to find Gary Shiner's Think Like a Pancreas. I will put a link to the Integrated Diabetes Services website so you can read more about basal testing if you choose. And I think that might be it other than the normal link to my Instagram handle and whatnot. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for taking time out of your day, your commute, your chores to pop in some earbuds and listen. It really means so much to me. I hope the podcast has been helpful to you. I hope it's been encouraging. If you've been enjoying it, I will not complain. If you'd love to spread the word and recommend it to another caregiver or mom of a type 1 diabetic, or maybe somebody who's been living with type 1 diabetes, the podcast definitely grows each and every week, and that is mostly by word of mouth. So thank you. You guys are awesome, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.